You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. I'm William Ball. I'm continuing our course on religious freedom in the United States with a particular emphasis on education, religion, and the courts. Our discussion of the taxation of religion brought us to consider other aspects of the relationship of religion to government. One of these we're going to open with today is the fact that numerous federal and state statutes require churches and other religious enterprises to furnish government agencies records of certain of their activities. If such a body is incorporated as a nonprofit corporation, the books and records may be sought by such interested parties as members of the organization or of the government. In this same vein, we should note that the application of tax exemption for religious bodies is now, by virtue of an IRS ruling, subject to public inspection. Further, the Federal Church Audit Procedures Act empowers the IRS to examine records of religious bodies in connection with determining the liabilities of individuals for federal taxes. And in all states are laws which, in one way or another, in respect to one facet of activity or another, allow government to examine records of religious organizations. It's not our purpose today to try to examine the myriad details of these laws and the myriad court cases which have resulted from application of these laws. It would seem elementary wisdom that churches and other religious organizations would observe two principles in relation to these records. A, never to furnish records when it's not clearly required, and then not in excess of what is required. B, to ascertain whether furnishing of a record actually conflicts with religious belief and practice, or is so unduly burdensome as to substantially impede religious mission. I realize that resistance in such cases may leave the church with only the protection as far as the free exercise grounds are concerned offered by the Smith Rule. A critically important protection of religious liberty is found in statutes in all states, often called priest-penitent communications. By these laws, neither a penitent nor a priest, or rabbi or minister, can be made to give evidence in court proceedings as to the content of a communication by the penitent to the clergyman. To be protected, the communication must be made in confidence, that is, privately, and not intended to be disclosed to others except in pursuit of the purpose of the communication. Clergyman has been held not to include deacons or nuns. Even a communication to a priest may not be privileged unless, on the occasion it was made, the priest was acting in his professional character as a spiritual advisor, not just as a friend. The Catholic Church in the United States has been profoundly interested in the relationship between law and the moral order. In that, 
the church was probably more at ease in the America I described in our first session, where the Supreme Court said we are a Christian nation and described why that was so. It was so, for example, in reference to marriage. We now have come quite a distance from that era, and even further from medieval times in which marriage had been regulated by the church applying its canon law. Long after the Reformation in England, marriage had remained within ecclesiastical jurisdiction there. In the United States, the right to marry is considered fundamental. In 1967, the Supreme Court, in the case of Loving versus Virginia, struck down Virginia's statute making interracial marriages a criminal offense. Said the court, the freedom to marry has long been recognized as one of the vital personal rights essential to the orderly pursuit of happiness by free men. But what about freedom to get out of marriage? Until recently in the United States, divorce was quite uncommon. Obtaining a divorce required crossing difficult hurdles. State laws limited divorce to cases in which grounds for divorce were proved to exist. Commonly, adultery, desertion, cruelty. These necessitated accusations and proof of fault. These state laws were bolstered by other kinds of laws supporting a Christian concept of marriage, laws criminalizing polygamy, as we saw in Reynolds versus the United States, the Mormon case of the 1870s, bigamy, fornication, adultery. They could be countered by such defenses as connivance, collusion, condemnation. To the older grounds for divorce, later were added incompatibility and living apart. And it's easy to see that these vague and open-ended grounds for divorce would become today's no-fault divorce. It was four decades ago that the floodgates to divorce were opened. The American Law Institute, a sort of French academy of distinguished leaders of the bar, judges and law professors, published a series of proposed revisions to state laws in important areas of moral concern. Among these was the elimination of the traditional grounds for divorce. As the movement to liberalize divorce laws in the states began to be effective, few realized that within decades of no-fault divorce, divorce itself for millions of couples would become irrelevant. The style of life now called living in would become widespread. There'd be nobody to divorce. This general weakening of the law as the protector of marriage would now have widening legal ramifications. A court in California would hold that a landlord who on religious grounds did not wish to rent space to an unmarried couple would be forced by the court to do so. Revisions in several areas of law would now be sought. For example, in respect to property rights, estates, wills, and both the liberalization of the divorce laws and the spread of living in, or relationships of fornication, would have incalculably bad effects upon the recent generations of children born in familyless households. And that too would contribute to drives in legislation to award large powers to the state to act as substitute parent. Unhappily, states have even added to that accession of power by seeking to so regulate religious child care agencies that the latter will be deprived of their independence of ministry. All of this demolition of marriage, as marriage is known to Catholics 
and to a great extent to Orthodox Jews and Evangelical Christians, has related intimately to the two most sinister developments America today faces. One of these is the use of the law to establish in the law the legitimacy of homosexual conduct and its production, that is, its advancement. The other is the use of the law to establish in the law the legitimacy of the killing of innocent human beings, hence the protection of their killers and the advancement of their cause. The homosexual movement, given the Aesopian name gay rights, has achieved formidable political power in the nation. That power is being exerted in all states and federally. The church has had an important concern over this, not expressive of condemnation of individuals, but indeed condemning their practices and opposing the transformation of our laws to advance those practices. The strong tide in favor of gay rights has been chiefly produced by the media's constant and unremitting effort at normalizing homosexuality as a natural choice of sexual life, its unvarying sympathy for those who make that choice, and its vilification of non-sympathizers as pathological homophobes. The intended result of this artificially engendered buildup of sentiment is to create a bundle of gay rights, especially in the fields of housing, employment, and education. Under the Constitution, and for example, under the Equal Employment Opportunity Act, homosexual men and women enjoy the same protections as men and women generally. It's not lawful to deny a lesbian employment on the ground that she is a woman. She has all the protection that the law affords any other woman. But the gay rights movement demands more. Not only that she may not be denied employment on the ground that she is a woman, also that she may not be denied employment on the ground that she is a lesbian. The significance of this is that it establishes in public law the principle with enormous ramifications for family life in our society generally that homosexual conduct has a status equal to that of heterosexual conduct. The interests of large numbers of homosexuals, media cast as the homosexual community, being articulated as gay rights and borne forward on a media tidal wave began to be politically significant a decade ago. It's important now that we all focus on the already partly successful efforts of the homosexual movement to change our laws broadly. It's at the state level where American citizens will be most affected in their daily lives that similar action has pursued. These efforts have been presented to the public in the calculated terminology of sexual orientation or sexual preference, rather paralleling the abortion movement's euphemisms of reproductive rights and choice. At least 12 states have now adopted legislation barring discrimination in housing and employment on account of sexual orientation. Close on the heels of this are other contemplated expansions of gay rights, in particular the legalizing of same-sex marriages. And in the train of this, new rules relating to custody, adoption, divorce, property, taxation, 
and the very definitions of marriage and family. Inevitably, these issues have started moving into our courts. Twelve years ago, the Supreme Court of the United States in Bowers v. Hardwick, by a vote of five to four, held that the Constitution conferred on homosexuals no fundamental right to engage in consensual sodomy, even in the privacy of the home. To hold otherwise, said the court, would be to cast aside millennia of moral teaching. Time has passed, and the membership of the court has changed, but what has not passed or changed is the reality encapsulated by Dennis Prager, writing in Crisis Magazine some years ago. Prager said, once one argues that any non-marital form of sexual behavior is the moral equivalent of marital sex, the door is open to all other forms of sexual expression. If consensual homosexual activity is valid, why not consensual incest between adults? Why is sex between an adult brother and sister more objectionable than sex between adult men? If a couple agrees, why not allow consensual adultery? Once non-marital sex is validated, where can we draw the line? Why shouldn't gay liberation be followed by incest liberation? In 1992, the Irish-American Gay, Lesbian, and Bisexual Group of Boston, interesting, known by the acronym GLIB, was formed for the purpose of marching in the traditional St. Patrick's Day parade there. This, so GLIB said, was to express pride in their triple identity as Irish, American, and homosexual also to show the diversity within the gay, lesbian, and bisexual communities. South Boston Allied War Veterans Council, the organization sponsoring the parade, pointed out that the parade was privately organized and had no other purpose than to express traditional religious and social values. The veterans had in past years always excluded groups, the KKK for example, having aims not corresponding to those values. Homosexuality to the veterans was a theme utterly at war with the values celebrated by the parade. The expression of those values, said the veterans, was protected by the First Amendment's provisions on freedom of speech and assembly. They pointed to decades of decisions by the U.S. Supreme Court in racial and other civil rights cases, holding parades to be quotes, a pristine form of speech, quotes. Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court in July of that year overrode the veterans' objections. The court held that the parade expressed no message of values and that as a public event, it was subject to the Massachusetts statute barring discrimination in public places based on sexual orientation. This put down of the veterans' right to freedom of expression and association was worsened by the fact that government, here the court, was implicitly ruling that if they were to express themselves by a parade at all, the veterans must, by including glib in the march, include expression of values conscientiously objectionable to the veterans. On June 19, 1995, the Supreme Court of the United States reversed the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. The court held that to require the parade to include gays, lesbians, and bisexuals 
violated its sponsor's freedom of speech. But since no one had tried to stop the parade, how was the sponsor's right of self-expression, free speech, violated? The court in answer said that one important manifestation of the principle of free speech is that one who chooses to speak may also decide what not to say. Do you remember the Barnett case, the flag salute case from our third session? The court now referred to Barnett's central point that one may not be compelled to affirmance of a belief with which he disagrees, compelled by a government, of course. The Boston Parade did not exclude any individual homosexual person. It should no more have had to tolerate a marching unit of homosexuals in its parade than a Jewish war veterans organization would have had to tolerate a unit of neo-Nazis. This case is known as Hurley versus Irish American gay, lesbian, and bisexual group of Boston. While the veterans case did not challenge the right of states to adopt legislation protecting gays, it does pause the big question of whether such acts can be used for the suppression of First Amendment rights. An even larger question was posed in 1995 by a gay rights case, this out of Colorado. Colorado had witnessed the gay rights campaign nationally and its success in their own state through adoptions of gay rights ordinances by several major cities. Widespread public concern grew that gay rights legislation would endanger the familial and privacy interests of citizens and the enjoyment of their associational and religious rights. There was well-grounded concern also respecting forcing state colleges and public and even private religious schools to conform educational policies to homosexual interests. Popular judgment condemned governmental approval of homosexual practices as constituting a legitimate alternative lifestyle. Indeed, enforcement of gay rights ordinances in Aspen, Denver, and Boulder caused intense alarm, as, for example, in Boulder, where a shop owner whose wife had distributed literature on homosexuality to a gay employee was ordered to attend sensitivity training. The reach of some ordinances was broad, requiring, for example, that a church give over use of its facilities to gay organizations if it opened them up to other community organizations. A voter uprising resulted in Amendment 2 to the Colorado Constitution barring the adopting by any governmental entity in Colorado of statutes, ordinances, or regulations giving protected status to homosexuals. Gay rights supporters sued to have Amendment 2 declared void. The Colorado Supreme Court on November 7, 1994, issued a final order declaring that Amendment 2 violated the federal constitution by violating the Equal Protection Clause of its 14th Amendment. The court in so holding placed homosexuals in the historic civil rights categories as an inherently disadvantaged minority. It also went on to hold that Amendment 2 denied homosexuals the equal protection of the laws because it denied them as an independently identifiable group what the court called their fundamental right to participate equally in the political process. But as the dissenting opinion in the case rightly said, 
homosexuals, unlike racial minorities, are a relatively powerful political and privileged special interest group. Further, hitherto unknown to the law is the idea that participation in the political process, other than through voting, is some sort of fundamental right. But having declared gay political interests, unlike myriad other groups' interests, to be fundamental, the court dismissed out of hand the religious and societal interests claimed by a majority of Coloradans in supporting Amendment 2. Thus was the Colorado Supreme Court's thinking. Now the case comes to the Supreme Court of the United States, and in 1996 it affirmed that ruling, likewise holding that Amendment 2 violated the Equal Protection Clause. Justices Scalia, Thomas, and Chief Justice Rehnquist dissented. They noted that the majority had said that homosexuality cannot be singled out for unfavorable treatment. But the court, 10 years earlier in the Bowers case, Bowers versus Hardwick, to which we referred before, had indeed refused to accept homosexual activity as conduct which was not protected as a fundamental right. Rather, the court had said that almost all states since the beginning of the Republic had made homosexual conduct a crime. That being so, said the dissenters, surely it is constitutionally permissible for a state to enact other laws merely disfavoring homosexual conduct. Involved here, as I had noted a few moments before, was not the equal protection of homosexuals, but the giving of special protection special protection to a particular class of citizens. This case, which is known by the name of Romer versus Evans, is in a very real sense a landmark decision. But it's a landmark which we see not on arrival upon a shore, but upon our departing, departing that is from our ancient moral tradition. Just as divorce and living in are resulting in major changes in our laws respecting marriage, family, child care, property, taxes, etc. So the changes in our law giving special protection to the homosexual culture are threatening similar changes in our laws relating to marriage. Marriage is certainly a central concern in this evaluation. An aberration worse than no-fault divorce or living in is the appearance in our culture of same-sex marriages. The Supreme Court of Hawaii in 1993 ruled that a state's barring marriages between homosexuals amounted to discrimination forbidden by Hawaii's constitution. The issue of such unions became national because the U.S. Constitution says that full faith and credit must be given in each state to the judicial proceedings of every other state. There have been two responses to Hawaii's action. One, the Congress passed the Defense of Marriage Act, defining marriage as only a legal union between one man and one woman as husband and wife, and the word spouse referring only to a person of the opposite sex who is a husband or wife. This 1996 act thus denies federal recognition of same-sex marriages. Therefore, it would affect marriage issues arising under federal immigration laws, federal employer health benefits, federal income tax questions. As I was being taped for this session, 
I noted with happiness that at least 18 states have now enacted laws denying recognition to same-sex marriages. It is not easy to predict what the Supreme Court of the United States will say if the issue comes before it, as likely it eventually will. You are well acquainted with the second of the sinister developments to which I had referred, the killing of innocent human beings. The court these past decades has shown great moral confusion, as I believe Professor Rice has well shown in his course. It has veered on occasion to the embracing of natural law concepts. A case in 1952 involved forced stomach pumping of a suspect by the police in order to obtain capsules of morphine as evidence. The Supreme Court, while trying to shake off criticism that it was following natural law, nevertheless ruled that the action of the police was what it called conduct that shocks the conscience. It contradicted, quote, considerations deeply rooted in reason, canons of decency and fairness. The case was Rochin versus California. In 1945, the court held Oklahoma's Habitual Criminal Sterilization Act unconstitutional. Note this statement of the court. We are dealing here with legislation which involves one of the basic rights of man. Marriage and procreation are fundamental to the very existence of the race. Procreation? But in Roe v. Wade in 1973, the court set in motion an engine of destruction of created life, or as it crudely termed it, products of conception. The court edged up to this conclusion gradually, but seemingly deliberately. In 1965 in Griswold v. Connecticut, the court, holding that a state could not punish someone for selling contraceptives to married people, based that conclusion on a right never before known in our constitutional history a so-called right of privacy. In Roe v. Wade, the right to kill the unborn was based on this so-called right of privacy. This decision, with the massive killings it has allowed, how does it relate to our subject of religious liberty? It does, just as marriage does, just as the subject of gay rights does, because under all these headings are mortal clashes between the inexorable demands for our Christian moral order and the claims of those who would use the power of the law to establish the opposite. It does because of the right and duty of Christians to bear moral witness in public affairs. That right is constantly being challenged. We saw in our discussion of the second session, the Supreme Court's holding in Levin versus Kurtzman, that legislation lobbied for by Catholics and their church is invalid precisely because of that. Now let me add an additional fact to the abortion rights mobilization case, which we were discussing in our last session. The abortion rights people in that case also demanded that the U.S. Catholic Conference, the National Conference of Catholic Bishops, and every diocese and parish in the country turn over all their records of contacts they may have had with candidates for public office and with pro-life organizations. The lower court ruled that this must be done. And when the USCC and NCCB refused, the judge imposed a fine of $50,000 a day. Happily, as we saw, the case was thrown out. 
but it does illustrate the almost savage extremities to which some advocates and some judges will go in their support of moral evil. A good part of what we will be taking up in this, our last session, will be devoted to the question of the profound involvement of churches and religion in great public issues of morality. Not only the innocent human life threatened today is that of the unborn, the terminally ill are also threatened. A ruling in Roe versus Casey was brought in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1994, where the court now called the killing involved to be a fundamental right. We must see the governing principle in these cases. It's that of utility. And invariably, the Wade and Casey principle of utility has come to rest in the support of assisted suicide and euthanasia. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit was to face this point just a few years ago where Washington's statute barring assisted suicide was challenged as unconstitutional under the utilitarian rule of the abortion decisions. Two Catholic judges on the three-judge panel deciding the case, John T. Noonan, Jr. and Diramid O'Scanlan, held it constitutional. The anti-life forces then succeeded in getting the whole bench of the Ninth Circuit to reconsider the case. The full case held for the right to assisted suicide. Judge Stephen Reinhardt, who, as I think I had mentioned, had voted against help to a deaf child in the Zobrest case, faithfully followed the Roe and Casey decisions in his opinion. The case, as you know, then went to the Supreme Court, which in June of 1997 unanimously held that there is no constitutional right to assisted suicide. Here was good news, but almost as good was the fact that the court let stand a law, Washington's law banning assisted suicide, enacted by the people of a state. We do not rejoice in the fact that it's an example of states' rights. It's important because it is a move away from the peril of having a tiny handful of citizens deciding matters for 240 million other citizens. It's important because it expresses the value of mediating structures, smaller units of our society, determining policy through the give and take of dialogue and the democratic process. As I now approach the end of my sessions with you, I realize how much we shall all need these processes in the days to come. As we read of developments in the United States in the area of law alone, we see all too realistically the evisceration of what we once, with some confidence, referred to as the rule of law. But when five justices of the Supreme Court, Blackman, Kennedy, O'Connor, Stevens, and Souter, tell you there's a fundamental right to kill a human being, you know that we can no longer say that we Americans live under a rule of law. If life, the most precious of all objects protected by the Constitution, can be thus dismissed in the case of one set of human beings, it can indeed be in other cases. If life can be thus regarded, the plug is necessarily pulled on all lesser subjects protected by the Constitution. But in the abortion case, you see especially clearly the madness of materialism. Imagine highly educated people who have enjoyed the fullness of free American life pronouncing such cruel absurdities as saying that what is killed in abortion is not a being, whose sole identity is human, 
or that to, quotes, terminate him or her is not the killing of him or her, masking the killing in deceitful Aesopian language. Yet such is the spectacle of madness we see when blind utility has power. So I turn to you who are rational and have a feel for, or perhaps at most a wistful recollection of, the good, as our traditions conceive, the good. C.S. Lewis, speaking of the law of nature, asked, what was the sense of saying the enemy, this was in wartime he wrote this, what was the sense of saying the enemy were in the wrong unless right is a real thing, which the Nazis at bottom knew as well and ought to have practiced? If they had no notion of what we mean by right, then we could no more have blamed them for that than for the color of their hair. He goes on to say, and he might well have described the American utilitarians of the present hour. Think of a country where people were admired for running away in battle, or where a man felt proud of double-crossing all the people who had been kind to him. You might just as well try to remember a country where two and two make five. Or, he might have added, a country where killing an innocent human being is called a fundamental right. We have argued here for religious liberty on the confident assumption that Orthodox Catholics, Orthodox Evangelicals, and Orthodox Jews bespeak a consensus on the good in society. I refer to biblically-based principles of personal morality and social justice. Differences among us there are. The consensus should be dominant. The consensus sets us Orthodox off from the crazies, the materialists, the utilitarians, those who, on our Supreme Court, for example, espouse the Machiavellian reason of state doctrine. As Hilary Belloc long ago noted, exciting new arrivals on the society's scene are often revivals of things tried before which failed. In our era, we are all too readily reminded of what Carlton Hayes called the grandiose name of Kulturkampf, battle for civilization, which Bismarck's Germany pursued. Hayes described it as the anti-clerical, anti-Catholic campaign which German liberals fought in the 1870s for the secularization of education and the limitation of ecclesiastical authority. A campaign, as Hayes said, essentially sectarian with a firm belief in the supreme menace of the Catholic Church to the material and national progress of a new age, so compelling as to justify the taking of extreme and exceptional measures. We're not yet a Bismarckian police state, but militant materialism is pushing us hard in that direction. In a recent luminous article, Father James V. Shaw notes the view of the American philosopher Richard Rorty that the ideal society is a liberal democratic one, quotes, in which absolute values and criteria no longer exist, end of quotes. Solely material satisfaction will be worth pursuing. Majorities will determine not only who shall hold political office and the laws that are made, but under the latter heading shall decide questions traditionally regarded as moral questions. Schall then turns to a member of the French Academy of Moral and Political Science for comment. Let me quote that. 
ultimately at its root is also a kind of nihilism which comes from an emptiness of soul. In the National Socialist dictatorship and in the Communist dictatorship too, there was never a single action which was regarded as evil in itself and always immoral. Whatever served the goals of the movement or the party was good, however inhuman it might be. The commentator cited by Schall was Germany's Josef Cardinal Ratzinger. Schall notes Ratzinger's probing of the question how, for a democratic society, this nihilism can be avoided with its totalitarian consequences. He points to Ratzinger's citing of Tocqueville and the latter's seeing alive in America a basic moral conviction. Schall then stresses Ratzinger's conclusion, precisely the same so often spoken by John Paul II, democracy can work only if individuals have grounded principles of right and wrong. This does not mean the creating of a state church or an establishment of religion. In Ratzinger's words, the church's nature is that she be separate from the state and that her faith not be imposed by the state, but rest on freely defined conviction. Well, this, I believe, provides us what is perhaps the most important feature on our horizon the recovery of Catholic principles as the guide to personal and societal life. Thanks very much for having heard me through. Write me if you want to. You can write me care of International Catholic University, P.O. Box 495, Notre Dame, Indiana, 46556. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.